when I actually went onto the stage for the very first time and walked into a set that I'd been involved in in designing, that was a you know a moment that I'll never forget. Hello and welcome to Red Carpet Rookies. My name is Mike Battle, a film production junior working for studios in London. Each episode, I bring you advice and stories from film, TV and content professionals to help demystify and democratise the industries for juniors and fans alike. Thanks for joining me. Let's get started. Today's guest is concept artist Dominic Lavery. Getting into the film industry initially on sci-fi movies such as The Fifth Element and Event Horizon, Dominic has worked his way up to become one of the most in-demand concept artists in the industry with one of the most outrageous resumes I think I've ever seen. So deep breath, here we go. Stardust, Lara Croft, Hugo, Godzilla, Maleficent 1, Maleficent 2, Star Wars Rogue One, Wonder Woman, Ready Player One, Aladdin, Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children and the small matter of three James Bond movies. How did I do, Dom? I think you're you're remembering them better than I do because I forget a lot of the films I've worked on now over the years. Uh, but uh, yeah, that was that was pretty good. Fantastic. Well, it's been a long time in the industry, I guess. Now, before we get going, would you be able to explain in your own words what do you see as the role of a concept artist for people who might not know? Okay, so in my mind, as way I've always felt is a concept artist is there to visualise. Um, like in the old days, pencil on paper or on computer or in 3D or any media, you're there to visualise what it is that the production designer and the director of the movie have got in their heads, how they would like their film to look, whether it's, you know, a prop or a set or a creature or a spaceship. You know, and I've always felt that the moments that they like what you've done, you've done a good job. So you're designing what they want, not what you want. (laughs) Fantastic. Now, to take it right back to the beginning, I'd love to hear about where you grew up and if your parents had artistic pursuits that maybe influenced you or not at all. No, not really. I mean, uh, I think my my mum has got an artistic ability that she's never used, really. Um, But... You know, I you know I grew up down in Kent. Um, my dad worked in the shipping industry. Uh, my mum was an estate agent and uh, was then a personal assistant to the head master of a school. Um, which up until last week, she still was. She's just retired at eight. Incredible. <laughs> That's really cool. So then, at what point did you realise that you were artistically talented? I guess you know I drawing creating stuff really is is all i've ever done you know from the moment i hear the stories of um my staying with my grandmother down in lyme regis and my mum coming in to find that i had drawn all over the bedclothes and the wall because somebody had given me a crayon uh really haven't stopped since then just always drawn you know when i was at school um I only got one O level and that was art. And uh, it turns out really now that I'm actually dyslexic, which back in those days was, you know, uh, 
nobody really talked about it. And so I was just kind of labelled as being a bit thick, really. But, you know, it was actually a case that I, I just couldn't take exams. And um, so I, I struggled um, in those days. But the fact that I could draw and it was very obvious I, I had, you know, an artistic ability and I had fantastic parents who helped me pursue a career in art. So, um, yeah, you know, I've, I've always drawn. I've always had that ability luckily yeah so did you then take that into art school where did you take that yeah artistic talent you'd recognized well after school i went to a college of further education uh to do to do further art and history of art and things but um i needed three o levels and i only had one so my parents uh got me a private uh tutor um to take two other o levels uh, and I passed them both um, quite, you know, quite easily in the end. But that was because it was a one to one and I wasn't in the school environment and I wasn't in an examination hall. Um, so then I got my three O levels to go to uh, West Kent College. Uh, I was there for, uh, I think, two or three years. I went from there to Blackheath Art School in London to do foundation course. And from that, I then went on to a private school of illustration. I was very, very lucky to get into up near Newbury called Gemini. Um, and I was there for three years and learnt uh, all the techniques of painting, illustration, and asking things like that. Um, so, yeah, it was, uh, I think, seven years in the end. Did you have a goal in your head at that point? I, I'm going to guess that you didn't have concept art in mind uh, during that time. Yeah, you're, you're quite right. I, um, my goal really was to be a science fiction fantasy artist in some way. Um, you know, and, and even when I did finish the art school, really my main area of employment was doing portrait paintings, drawing people's pets. <laughs> dogs. <laughs> I did a, I did a great big oil painting of a chicken for a manor house. That was, that was a, a quite an interesting one, but my love of film really fueled me to want to work in film in some way and you know I knew of the great concept artists who have been around really for me you know particularly the 70s and 80s particularly people like Sid Mead and, and you know I, I knew that this world existed out there I had no idea whatsoever how to get into it mm. so really I I decided that I needed to find out myself and I wrote to film studios. I visited Pinewood regularly to try and get my foot in the door. Um, but of course I needed to make money uh, and there was so little work doing book covers, video covers and things like that at the time that, you know, I, I really felt I needed to find a way into the film industry. And so that's what I was pursuing to do so where did your first interaction with the business come you had the desire where did your first interaction find itself do you know what my very first one actually was when i was quite young and i wrote to jim henson as a kid i sent him some drawings and uh, i wish i could find the letter i got back and i know it's around somewhere but he wrote back to me and he he was just fantastic and told me to to follow your dreams um and to just keep on trying and so when I was at Pinewood one day, I met a few people at um, Creature FX and places like that. And I was in Pinewood 
and I think I was just delivering some sketches for some preacher stuff. It was all very, you know, early days for me. Uh, and I really, I, you know, I did really didn't have my foot in the door at that stage at all. Mm. Um, I just knew some people. And then my lucky day came and I was at Creature Effects. And one of the chaps there said, a big French science fiction film had just come into Pinewood and nobody knew anything about it, but they knew they were in J Block. So I got my portfolio and I walked up to J Block. There was no one there. They're all in a meeting and I just left my work behind. And I got in my car and I drove home. I get home back to Oxford and there's a message on my answer phone saying, oh yeah, they'd, they'd like to see me. So I get in my car and I drive all the way back to Pinewood again. And I met the, uh, the production designer of that film called Dan Vale. And um, to cut the very long story short, he offered me a job and that was The Fifth Element. Incredible. And obviously that became such a famous movie. What was your experience like as such a fresh-faced artist on a big show like that? Terrifying and very exciting. Mm. You know, it was to get my first proper big break on, on a film of that scale and that imagination as well. Uh, it was uh, it was a roller coaster of a ride for me. Um, you know, the, the, the big pluses were I got to meet some people in the art department who have been lifelong friends since, but the stresses involved in working on a film of that size became very evident very quickly. But, you know, I had to learn quick. And, you know, a lot of my techniques I'd learned in art were thrown completely out the window because at the end of the day, it's a great big sketch pad, a marker pen and some markers sometimes. And uh, off you go and just just start generating ideas. And that's when I realized this is what I love to do. I love to generate ideas for things. And that was fantastic. Obviously, you're saying that you're just sort of throwing yourself into the career there. You know, you're, you're at the school, you were talking to people, you were heading down to Pinewood, just giving out your work. If you were starting again now, is there anything you would do differently? Because a particularly interesting, I find as well, you've mentioned that you, you learned to paint and things like that. Now concept art is so computer generated. How do you yeah. feel the world is different now for younger people coming up? I tell you, the most difficult thing for the young people now wanting to work in the industry is there are so many people wanting to be conceptized. When I started, there was literally a handful, mm. you know, that, that, that I knew of particularly, you know, that I got, I got to know at that time. There was literally, you know, you know, five guys, if that, back then actually working full-time as a concept artist wow. um, in the UK um, that I knew of anyway. And, uh, but now, you know, there, there were hundreds, if not thousands of guys wanted to be conceptized and and a lot of this really does come down from uh the internet and the the realization of um so much work being done on computer now which has its pros and its cons in in my book which i'm sure we'll go into at some point but you know there are so many young people wanting to do the job it's so difficult for them to to find their break because you know you really just you need to stand out from the crowd. Is there a way to do that online? Is it a meritocracy? There's a you know I hate to say it. There's probably a, a big chunk of luck, the right person seeing your work at the right time. Um, there there are uh, many outlets out there for you to show your work. Um, many different um, 
uh, sites uh, like art station and places like that. But, you know, there were so many people on there. Um, I still think really one of the, the better ways, and it's very difficult, uh, is to be in the right place at the right time and actually show your work to somebody, to actually be there, to actually say, this is what I do. Mm. Um, and you need to to really have a look, I would say a style, you, you, you know, to, to be different. Because with the internet, with, with so much great work being out there, what, you, what you're finding is there are so many artists all learning through the internet and they're all learning to do it the same way. Oh, that's interesting. We see so much artwork that, to be honest with you, you don't know who's done it anymore because it all looks the same. That's a really interesting point. I wonder if the way that everyone can learn on the internet now through YouTube and things like that means that people are all learning from the same few people. Yep. Yeah, yeah, very much so. You know, learning the same techniques, wanting things to look the same. I, I, I'm still a firm believer that give somebody a pencil and a piece of paper, no computer, no internet, and tell them to come up with an idea. And you'll get some fantastic ideas through there. You know, a, a supervisor, uh, sorry, no, a, a visual effects supervisor, I was chatting to a couple of years ago, said we live in a world where films are just designed by Google and not even designed by Google, but designed by the first three pages of Google because people can't be bothered to scroll any faster. Very true. You know, and, you know, it is very true. And, and I, one of the things I loved about the job when I started was coming up with great new ideas. Whereas now um, coming up with those new ideas or being given the chance to come up with those new ideas is getting harder and harder. Definitely. You mentioned working with hand and pencil and paper there. Obviously, after Fifth Element, you quite soon moved on to a few Bond movies when I presume you're still quite junior. What was it like back then? Was it still pencil and paper or did it move into computers? And also, what was it like to work on a big franchise like Bond, le legacy franchise, as it were? Well, um, I, I moved over to working on computer the very first thing I did on computer was 1999, very late 1999. And if I'm right, I think it was a very early pitch for a Red Dwarf movie when I first started using computers. So I, I suppose for the first five or six years of my career, it was marker pens, pencils and acrylics. Um, my first Bond film, I think, was 1996. And um, this Tomorrow Never Dies, was it? Tomorrow Never Dies, yes. And it was, you know, dream come true, working on a Bond film. And um, uh, again, one of the things that was very evident when I was working on that film was a real understanding of team effort. Working so tight with, uh, with so many people, so, ama so many amazingly talented people working to create these sets, models, miniatures, and, and you know, I... I I'm still blown away by how talented people are in the film industry, that these people that nobody ever really gets to see, you know, you do now with them um, with making ofs and stuff like that. But, you know, I was always and still am just in awe at what people are able to create with their hands. But one of the best things about working on the Bond film was seeing my dad because he was a huge Bond fan. <laughs> and when I told him, when I told my dad I'm working on a Bond film, you know, he was, you know, over the moon and when i you know i i, I gave him my crew t-shirt to wear and he he wore it to work just I'm so sure. he could let people know that his son was working on a bond film so yeah that was a fantastic 
payment. Did you get to design any notable gadgets or sets? Well, on, on the three Bond films, I did. Yeah. Um, I, the, 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 I suppose the most notable, and we worked on lots of different aspects of them, from, from gadgets to sets and stuff, but I suppose the main ones were um, the jet boat that Bond drives up the Thames mm. in The World Is Not Enough, um, the paraskis that they uh, that they fly over the Alps, if I remember rightly, that then jettison their parachutes and then they drive along the ground with their machine guns and their bombs. I, I designed the looks of those. But again, it, like I said, I'm designing the look. Um, it's those incredibly talented guys that then take your designs and make them real, as you, you know, are just incredible. And also, I've got to say, my first Bond film, I worked for um, Alan Cameron, sadly he's no longer with us, um, but my, the other two, I worked uh, with Peter Lamont, who's uh, an absolute legend in our film industry. Absolutely, Titanic. And to work and to work with Peter, because I'd worked on with him on um, some other things as well, but to work with him on on Bond was just incredible. And what an amazing person to learn from as well. You know, so laid back, so knowledgeable, so friendly, so understanding of his crew and how to treat them uh wonderful experience and i have to say after all these years i say you know one of the the most uh wonderful designers i ever worked for was definitely peter was there a key lesson that you learned from him that you've taken with you patience <laughs> having patience because like i said before as a concept artist you, you know if you're doing what you wanted you do one drawing and go there you go but that's not how it works. You're, you're trying to create, like I said, what the designer and the director want. And you can do 10 sketches and ideas and none of them will be right. Or you can do 10 sketches and they like bits of this one. I like the way that that looks in that one. And I like the, the way that the fins are in that one. And you'll start taking these elements and you'll do another few sketches and then another few sketches for them. And eventually you'll end up with this sketch, this idea that's an amalgamation of all the other ideas and, and um, references that you've been given. And then when, you know, Peter comes in and says, that's it, it's brilliant. You know, you know, you've done a good job. And then maybe you get a chance to colour it in. <laughs> but, you know, it's not like today where you have these, you know, very, very finished concept art paintings everywhere. Uh, in those days, it, you know, if you were lucky, you got to colour your sketch in. Um, but for me, that was concept art. And I, you know, I learned a lot of that from Peter on understanding, changing and being patient. Fantastic. So obviously the Bond films gave you your early education in large scale movie making, but what followed was another whole host of interesting work. So we'll be back after the break to discuss more of the hits. I hope you're enjoying Red Carpet Rookies. If you'd like to support the show, you can get a two-month free trial of Skillshare, the Netflix of online courses, with the link in the podcast show notes. You can learn from topics including filmmaking, Photoshop, music production, and hundreds more. If you fancy yourself as a scriptwriter, you could even check out my beginner's course for professional screenwriting software, Final Draft. Concept artists have a really interesting perspective because you're involved from so early on in the process. What's it like when you're really early doors and it's maybe just yourself, the director and the production set designer on shows like Rogue One? When you are very, very early on, uh, it's the best time because, 
you're literally just what we like to call is blue sky sketching. You're just coming up with the very initial ideas of how this could look. Um, on Rogue One, uh, I, I wasn't there at the beginning. Um, I joined um, a little while into it. John McCoy and Matt Allsop have been working with Gareth before I started on it. Um, and it was like doing mood board, storyboard type, very quick black and white sketches for it. Um, and I have to say, when I started on that, because I worked with Gareth on Godzilla, and uh, Gareth wanted me to come and work on Rogue One. And I'd said, uh, as long as it's not really doing storyboards, it's not really my kind of thing and stuff. He said, oh, no, it's fine. It, you know, we, we'll be just coming up with some cool stuff and whatever. So day one, I arrive and uh, Gareth goes, yeah, it's kind of like doing storyboards. <laughs> I was like, oh, no. And then I saw what Matt and John had been doing. And my jaw dropped and it was like, oh, my God, it's really amazing work. Um, so I felt kind of like a kid again starting out because I don't really I haven't really done this kind of work. But again, with them and seeing what they've done and understanding what this job entailed, which was, again, very quick black and white artwork to be dropped into the timeline for um for the for editing uh i very quickly did find my feet on it and realized it was kind of like a realization of my love of just sketching out ideas again not having to color it in not having to worry about how detailed it is it was mood board and um just coming up with with possible key moments in the film you know gareth would say oh this is happening at this time and you know he would reference some films or or um a moment in a film and says you know i want to have that kind of a feeling and so then we would go away and do some quick sketches and ideas to try and make that work in his vision of rogue one so um yeah it, loved it that's interesting because I read that the tone of Rogue One changed quite a lot through its production and that it was incredibly dark in the beginning. Is that how it was when you came onto the project early doors? Yeah, I mean, the, the I wasn't on it for as long as um, a number of the other guys, but in the, the time that I was on it, it, it was very evident that, that what Gareth really wanted to create was a dark war movie um, based in you know the Star Wars world. and And I have to say... It was really exciting, um, you know, seeing what, you know, what Matt and John had already done and and sitting and chatting with Gareth about it, you know, and how excited he would get. Uh, in the same way that, you know, when I was working with him for the pitch for Godzilla, you know, ultimately Gareth is a fanboy. And obviously he was a big Star Wars fanboy, but he had his vision of, of how this film should go. And it was very dark. Um, I mean, I, I know there was a number of scenes that were being boarded uh, and the mood boards were being done for that never got through. Um, but they were, you know, very dark scenes. Uh, but, you know, I, I would say were, were pretty epic as well. You know, very memorable stuff. You've mentioned the Godzilla pitch there. What's it like that very, very early pitching stage? Because that's something we don't really hear about much. And also, how did you get involved on the project? Gavin Bouquet, production designer, who I have worked with a lot over the years, he had been brought on board 
um, to uh, to work with Gareth on the pitch of how his vision of Godzilla could look. And um, there was it was basically we were in what I can only describe as a cupboard <laughs> uh, NPC up in London, and so there'd be um, me and Gavin, and you know. Um, a few other guys came and joined in for a bit here and there, one being a good friend of mine, Rob Bliss, was on it for a, a little while. Um, and every now and then, Gareth would pop into the cupboard and we would sit there and discuss this film, his vision. And, and what we were coming up with were just moments that could be in the film, moments that, that sell what Gareth's vision of how he wanted Godzilla to be. And it was... Yeah, again, it's it's really exciting that part of it because it is you know you you are really right at the beginning, and it was also hugely important because we know that what we are coming up with, and there were guys also working on it in the states as well. When there's a big show and tell, which there was once all the work was done and it was all printed big, and and um, Gavin put on basically he put on a show in America for Legendary Pictures. Mm. And it was, a, it was a gallery full of our artwork with um, some of the images that, that um, me and some of the other guys had done printed enormous, some of them on huge trans lights to make the impact of what this film yeah. could really look like. And then when all the important people, all, all the grown-ups come and they walk into this room and they see all this amazing stuff, the idea is that they're going to see it and go, we need to make this movie. And uh, that's kind of what happened. They saw the work, they saw the pitch, and they saw all, all the imagery and the ideas and, and, and um, Gareth's enthusiasm for the project. And they said, yep, yeah, we got to make this film. That's really cool. And obviously being there right in the beginning, you have this wide open creative canvas. Given that you're always involved so early, I bet a lot of the movies you do seem like they're going to be a lot better than they actually turn out after going through the machine, which obviously I'm not going to ask you to publicly talk about. My question is, has there been one that went the other way where you underestimated it in the beginning and ultimately it really worked out? I do work on a lot of films <laughs> the other way around. Um, <laughs> I mean, one film that I was surprised at just how good it was, and it wasn't because I thought it was going to be bad, but I, I really wasn't too sure how it was going at all, you know, it, I, I, I really, you know, I really wasn't sure about it. And that was Stardust. Sure. And then when it did come out, we saw it and it was just like, yes, it was really good. <laughs> you know, it really was a, you know, a fantastic surprise. It was just, it was a really good film. But I think it's more a case of sometimes when you, when you are embedded on a film and you're working and and I've got to say, it, it can be really hard work, you know, working long hours and you're constantly trying to come up with ideas. You kind of lose focus sometimes on what it is you're really working on because you're focusing on this one design, one idea. And very quickly, you, you do lose track of the film as a whole. So when you do see the cast and crew showing of the film, when we all get together at the end to see it, quite often, it is a surprise anyway, you know, it's because you'd forgotten really what it was you were working on and then to see it on the big screen, particularly when a lot of your stuff has made it through and is there on the big screen, you just think, oh, wow, yeah, that's fantastic. And, and very quickly going back to Godzilla, I remember 
I got invited to the cast and crew um, up in up in London, and I didn't work on the film in the end. After the pitch, um, it was made. Um, I think it was made in Canada in the end. I'm, I'm not 100 percent sure, but but I can work on the film itself. But after the cast and crew, Gareth came up to me afterwards. He saw me and he came up and says, I, "I think you can see a lot of what we did in the pitch made it through to the to the actual film." And he was right, and, and that was fantastic to see all that hard work we'd put in for the pitch to make it through to actually to the film itself. Yeah, it was fantastic. Yeah. Is there one, because people may not know about concept artistry, that it's not just big worlds and panoramas. You also design little products for the actors' costumes, etc., things like that. Is there one crystalline moment where you were in the cinema and you saw something on the screen and thought, I did that, whether it was Wonder Woman's world or a little gadget? Oh man, so many. I can't think of anything off the top of my off the top of my head. Um, you know, I suppose Bond's gadgets and stuff, you know, like these jet boat and there's various guns and things. Um but um I, I, I can tell you the very first time when the hairs literally went up in the back of my neck and the realization of the job that I am now gonna do probably for the rest of my life was back on Fifth Element when I walked into a set that kind of started out as just sketches on a bit of paper. And um, it was Zorg's office. And um, a number of other guys had also worked on it as well. And um, if I'm right, Patrice Garcia had worked on it as well. And he had some beautiful drawings he had done. But it was... You know, I'd worked on um, a layout for it. I'd worked on um, all the guns in the cabinets and I'd worked on, you know, the view out the window and that, those kind of things. So I'd been involved with this particular set. So when I actually went onto the stage for the very first time and walked into a set that I'd been involved in in designing, that was a you know a moment that i'll never forget and like i said the hairs went up on the back of my neck and it was like oh my god this is what it's all about it's fantastic that's incredible dom you mentioned there the moment that kind of started it all and now i'd like to come back after the break and we'll talk about the next moments in the future of the industry we've discussed that concept artistry is very heavily computer generated now as VR and 3D software gets better and more ingrained in culture, do you think that concepting will move more into the 3D realm and arguably overwhelm other areas of the art department, drafting of sets and things? Unfortunately, and I say unfortunately, and inevitably, yes. Um, it already is, really. Um, you know, the, the software is getting more powerful. Um, the understanding of the use of the software is is an industry norm now. I mean, you you need to know it. You know, uh, I think it's sad when, you know, I I was so lucky to have started my career surrounded by amazing people in the art department with their their uh, um, drafting ability with a pencil on, particularly art with technical drawings that I mean, I'd even say now is almost lost now because it's all done on computer, but there is an artistry and a beauty to, to those drawings. Uh, I can, you know, there, there, there are so many people, but there was one 
chap, sadly not with us now, called Fred Hull, who I remember standing next to his desk and seeing how he was drawing this this beautiful technical drawing and the way he shaded it and and he, he, his passion for doing it. And he just blew me away. And it was, you know, and then you realise that there's so many of them, these, these people doing this, you know, these amazing drawings. Now it's almost gone. And I, I, you know, I know the world has to change and we have to move on. And computers have made um, people's ability to create you know, environments and art and stuff. It, it, it's so powerful what you can do on computers. But fundamentally, I, I worry that it, it is taking away people's actual ability to draw something with a pencil and, you know, to not copy, to not download other people's pre-made models off the internet and stick them together in another way and come up with another design. You know, it's very powerful and uh, that it looks amazing, a lot of this work. But is that really designing it out of your head? I don't. I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. So would you say to young people coming up who would like to be in the art department or concept artist that they should flex that tactile hand muscle and draw Absolutely. And, and I, I would say, you know, so it's still worth it. Definitely. And I'd say going back to something we said earlier about standing out from the crowd is when you're going to show your portfolio, um, by all means, have the amazing rendered 3D images, you know, all the stuff, all, all that really high and finished stuff. But show the design process, show what was going through your mind to create the image? You know, say, you know, if you've done a spaceship, if you've done this beautifully 3D rendered spaceship, well, have that in there, but show the design process, show the sketches on paper you've done with a pencil, or even if it is in Photoshop or Painter or Procreate, but hand-drawn sketches and ideas and, and show that you can, you can develop an idea to the point of it being photo real and rendered at the end don't just show the photo real render at the end because that's not really showing your ability to design something you know and I, I think it's really important to stand out from the crowd and one way of doing that is to show a drawing on a piece of paper you've done with that pencil it'd be brilliant do you think that covid might accelerate this movement to vr and 3d software only um, yes, I would say probably to a certain degree, in like, particularly in, in the visual effects departments and stuff like that. Uh, I've been working on computer, like I said, since 1999, 2000. And um, when I first started out, it was mainly in Painter and Photoshop. And I have to say, all these years later, nearly everything I do is still Painter and Photoshop. <laughs> and uh, I do use some 3D packages but um i am dyslexic and um i do have you know some other learning issues and so learning um 3d programs is incredibly difficult for me uh you know if i could i'd love to just go back to painting and drawing again <laughs> but um there are so many uh software packages out there now it is really important for the 
the next generation, the generation starting now, that they do use what is needed, the tools of the trade. That's what all this is. It, you know, the software, or they're just different paintbrushes. They're different pencils. It's just they're digital ones. You do need to learn how to use them if you're going to get on in the industry. Ignoring what we've discussed so far, is there anything else that you would want to maybe change about the industry? Definitely diversity of it. Uh, I know it's come up uh, in previous podcasts, so I'm not going to go back over um, what's already been discussed, apart from the fact that I totally agree. And I think diversity is hugely important uh, in the film industry. It is a more diverse workplace now than it was, you know, when I started. And I think people from different cultures and different backgrounds can bring their own ideas and their own visions from that are so different to ours. And they shouldn't feel that they have to try and be like us or, you know, their design ethic needs to be like everything else they see uh, on a big Hollywood screen or in a Marvel film or a Star Wars film. You know, your backgrounds and, and where you come from, is there's some, it's, it's just a, a beautiful way of, of inventing a look that's based on your cultures. And I think we could learn a hell of a lot from that and have unique looks to, to our products and to our, um, whether it's a film or a comic or a book or anything like that, you know, uh, and I think the internet has opened up that, uh, it's a very positive thing about the internet, is opened up that people around the world have a way of showing their work. I just think the film industry needs to tap into that a bit more. I think that's a fantastic answer and it definitely fits into your wider narrative of being yourself and that's where the creativity comes from. Now, yeah. We're going to take a quick break now and we'll be back with our last little questionnaire for Dominic Lavery. So finally, on Red Carpet Rookies podcast, I like to do my version of the James Lipton in the Actors Studio questionnaire. So it's quick fire, Dom. So just say what comes into your head, first of all. Are you ready? Okay. Number one, what is the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Just keep going. Very good. Number two, do you have a favourite film? Uh, it's going to have to be Blade Runner. Number three is normally what gives you a reason to get up early for an early call time, which doesn't really apply to you. So what gives you a reason to get up and do a long day of film hours concepting? A new adventure. Good answer. Which job in the industry would you like to do if you weren't doing yours? Well, we didn't. We haven't... Um gone there but i have done a bit of animation direction which i absolutely loved so i would love to do more of that fantastic if you could work with one person living or dead who would it be terry gilliam number six is what is a book that everyone should read i know you mentioned your dyslexia earlier yeah um i am legend cool and finally if you won an oscar who would you thank it would have to be my mom and dad steering me when I, you know, they, they, they were the rudder to my ship uh, for so many years. My, you know, my dad's not with me anymore and I miss him every day. But, you know, my mum and dad were there for me all the time to to steer me and to, they were my rock, really. A perfect answer. And with that, we come to the end of today's interview. Thank you so much to Dom Lavery for joining me. A masterclass in originality, creativity, and some great stories thrown into. No, thank you, mate. I've really enjoyed it.
If you'd like to check out Dom's artwork, you can follow him on Instagram at Dom Lavery, that's L-A-V-E-R-Y, film art stuff, where he posts his incredible drawings that made it into movies, or even more interestingly, the ones that didn't. That's all from Red Carpet Rickies today. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you again for listening to another episode of Red Carpet Rookies. To keep updated, you can follow Red Carpet Rookies on Instagram and Facebook, RC Rookies Pod on Twitter, or contact us at redcarpetrookies at gmail.com. And please do subscribe or drop us a rating and review on the Apple Podcast Store on your iPhone or online if you're an Android user. Have a great day and we'll see you next time.